Welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Paris Jackson, the host of Crosscut Now on KCTS 9, and your host for this podcast. For this episode, we're listening in on a conversation with former U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder. Holder appeared at the Crosscut Ideas Festival to talk about the rule of law, and there was a lot to talk about. He gives his take on Donald Trump's recent indictment and other impending investigations against the former president and the Supreme Court, but the heart of the conversation is voting rights. In this conversation with Crosscut Managing Editor Mark Baumgarten, Holder shares how in 2013, the Supreme Court's decision to dismantle a key provision of the 1965 Voting Rights Act has changed American democracy and the trajectory of his career. Support for this and all other conversations on the equity track of the Crosscut Ideas Festival comes from Waldron. Access to free, trustworthy media is crucial. Waldron supports Crosscut's independent journalism to keep us informed, engaged, and activated. Waldron empowers people to achieve their purpose with sound information. The talk was recorded at the beginning of May for the Crosscut Ideas Festival. I hope you enjoy this poignant conversation. If you have any feedback, please send it to talks at crosscut.com. Now let's get into it. I've been dying for a drink of water. There we go. I'm dying for another kind of drink, but let's make right. this really well, interesting. Let's, let's, let's serve do, alcohol. Let's all get have this fun. over with quick. All right. There we go. Uh, General, you doing okay? Should yeah. We start? So all far, right. I mean, it's only we're only five seconds into it. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Crosscut Ideas Festival. My name is Mark Bumgarten. I'm the managing editor at Crosscut, where I oversee a newsroom of dedicated journalists telling the stories of Seattle and the Pacific Northwest. My guest today, Eric Holder, is best known for his time as the U.S. Attorney General, a role he was appointed to by President Barack Obama and that he held from 2009 to 2015. Since stepping down as Attorney General, he has continued working on voting rights. His book, Our Unfinished March, is a history of the fight for voting rights in the United States. And he currently chairs the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. General Holder, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So um, you're very familiar with uh, the place where the rule of law meets the world of politics. And that is an intersection that is of high interest uh, today. So I wanted to start by talking about maybe the most high-profile example of that, the indictment of Donald Trump, of former President Trump. And my question is, would you have brought those indictments, given what we know about the case? Yeah, I suspect that I would have. Um, you know, people have tended to dismiss that case. Um, and I don't think that you necessarily should. We have to understand that was a very close election. Um, you know, if a few thousand votes had switched in, I don't know, three, four, five states, um, the result might have been different. I mean, Hillary Clinton won by, you know, 2.6 million, almost 3 million votes, whatever. The Electoral College was, um, was a little different. If that information had come out about payoffs to a, um, you know, a porn star, 
um, and the circumstances under which they had occurred. Um, I, that might have swayed um, the election. So I think that substantively, it, there is a, a basis to say that that's worthy of um, a criminal indictment. And then when you also look at the fact that Michael Cohen was charged and went to jail for being a part of that same scheme, um, there seem, almost seems to be an equality thing here that would um, dictate that, uh, that result. So I think that what Alvin Bragg did in, um, in Manhattan was totally appropriate. Hmm. So this and is, I would have done the same thing. So this is the first uh, case, but it is not the only case. Uh, we are expecting that we may see uh, an indictment in the case in Georgia, um, and we'll let you talk about the other cases. But I, I was wondering if you could talk about what you see when you look at those cases, and what, what case do you feel is the strongest in showing uh, that the former president had criminal intent? Ooh, that's an interesting case. I mean, I, I think the January 6th case, which I'd, I'd call that one, um, you know, just based on what we saw from the January 6th committee, people always said, well, how do you show Donald Trump's intent? That's gonna be really hard. No, it isn't, <laughs> you know? He called, he made a phone call to Georgia and said, find me 11,780 votes. He told the people at the Justice Department, you just go out there and say that, it's, uh, that, that there was fraud and you know, we'll take care of the rest. In addition to all the other stuff, the January 6th committee um, has put out there. You know, tons and tons of his advisors saying there was no fraud, there was no fraud. His attorney general, not a fan, I'm not a big fan of Bill Barr, but Barr comes out and says, you know, there, there's no fraud. Um, so the January 6th, uh, I think, case can be brought, should be brought, I think will be brought, and given what the aim of that effort was, to subvert our democracy, to stop the transfer of power, that is in some ways the most um, most important of the cases. But I would not also say that, you know, the I, we don't know all the facts surrounding what happened with those classified documents. Um, and then the Georgia case itself. I mean, you know, trying to tamper with um, the electors who are gonna go to the electoral college from the state of Georgia. I mean, all of that stuff I think is important. And I think ultimately all three cases are gonna be indicted. And so a president has been indicted. Uh, that uh, line has been stepped over. That, that is no yeah, longer, that never happened before, no longer right? unprecedented. Um, yeah. It may happen again. Uh, the next unprecedented uh, act may be that a president is convicted. What do you think will happen if Donald Trump is convicted in any one of these cases? How does, what are the political repercussions of that? How does that play out? Well, you know, I think, First off, you know, this notion, the, the doomsayers, who say this will split the country and that there'll be violence in the street. You know, I, I think this nation has the capacity to absorb, um, you know, an awful lot. We have absorbed a lot in our, in our past, and I don't think that that necessarily is true. Now, will a certain part of his base be energized? Um, and because everybody's got guns in this country, does that worry me? Yes, yeah, to, to, some, to some degree. But I think the nation can handle it. Um, I think we have to look at the other way as well. Suppose he's not indicted. Suppose he's not convicted. What is to prevent somebody 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 50 years from now, some president to say, well, you know what? I think I'm gonna lose this election, so I think I'll try to come up with a way in which I can, in essence, steal it. And the worst that'll happen is that my reputation will be damaged. I won't have to face any kind of criminal sanction. We have to remember that part of the criminal law is to deter people 
from doing things that we uh, deem to be anti-social. Um, so I think the, the nation can handle it. I think um, it, it makes sense for us to bring you know, these, these cases. Um, and then it'll be interesting to see what the judges in those cases, assuming there are convictions, what do they do then with a, um, with a former president of the United States? Is there an argument to be made for a pardon at any point in the interest of the country being able to move forward? Um, I mean, this is what we saw from Gerald Ford with Richard Nixon, you know, um, in another unprecedented time. But is that something that you think about at all? You know, for the longest time, I've been a fan of the Ford pardon. Uh, I did an interview with David Axelrod probably about three, four years ago at this point. And I, was, I expressed at that point a real hesitance to bring charges against a former president because of the divisive nature of, um, of such an act. But given what happened and given what the, the stakes were. Um, this and, is before January 6th. Was, was this, that... be, this is before January the 6th. So I, didn't, right. you know, I, I would, could not envision in my mind that we would have a president who would, in essence, try to, you know, as I said, subvert our, our democracy. Given that fact, um, I really kind of moved and said, you know, a, a pardon um, it would not be appropriate. I mean, the case needs to be laid out to the American people and for history. For people to understand, for history, to understand what were the aims, uh, what was actually done, who was involved, and then who ultimately um, is held accountable. Um, we have to think of this not only in the moment, which is important, but also to think about it, what it means for our nation going, going forward. So these Trump cases, um, they're about elections. They're about... Uh, people's right to vote, um, the belief that people should be able to make an informed vote, and uh, the right to have that vote count. And this is where so much of your work resides. So I just want to be clear, we're not just asking you to, to comment on the news of the day. Your interest is really in, um, in elections and democracy, and, um, and there's so many different fronts in that battle right now. And so, um, so let's maybe move on sure. to, to uh, some others. Hey, let's and, talk about something other than Donald Trump. Yeah, I was just, you know, we're... <laughs> we, got, we, we got that uh, done, and now uh, there's a lot of other things to talk sure. about. One of the things I want to go a ways back and talk about the Voting Rights Act. The decision in 2013, the Supreme Court decision to, to gut the Voting Rights Act, um, as, as people have called it, was a, a really pivotal decision in this modern era of uh, voting rights um, uh, work that you're doing. And you were intimately involved in that. Your name is on the case, uh, Shelby County versus Holder. And I was wondering if you could just share with us briefly how that case, how that decision has affected voting rights over the last 10 years as a way to sort of set up the, the rest of our conversation about voting rights. Yeah, the Shelby County case, I'd never call it Shelby County versus Holder. I don't, you know, I don't want my name associated with it. That's like having your name on the Dred Scott versus Holder or something like that. You, you, you won't want your name associated with the case. So the Shelby County case in 2013, the Supreme Court essentially, I don't want to get too technical, but essentially took away from the Justice Department its pre-clearance ability because of the coverage formula was, was deemed to be um, 
uh, not up to date, but took away from the Justice Department a power in what were called covered jurisdictions, which were largely in the Old South, um, but in New York and other places as well, parts of New York as well, um, to say that if you wanted to make changes to your electoral systems, because you have a history of discrimination when it comes to voting, you have to pre-clear those things through the Justice Department. So it had two effects. First off, a lot of jurisdictions who might have tried to do things just never tried to do them because they knew they wouldn't get pre-cleared by the Justice Department. But if the Justice Department said, we're not gonna pre-clear, and a local jurisdiction said, well, we're gonna try it anyway, then it goes to a special panel in Washington, D.C., and three judges would decide whether or not to allow the changes to occur. Justice Department almost always won those cases. And so it had the impact of deterring, deterring, get back to that word again, um, jurisdictions from doing things. Since the Shelby County case, the Justice Department essentially off the field in a significant way, we saw almost immediately after the case in 2013, under the guise of protecting the right to vote, uh, the proliferation of unnecessary photo ID laws for people to have to vote. Uh, we saw, we've seen at least 1,700 polling places closed around the country. We have seen voter purging happen in places disproportionately in communities of color. Uh, all of these things that have happened probably would not have happened with a strong Voting Rights Act and with a Justice Department inclined to use the power that it had pursuant um, to that act. And that closure of 1,700 polling places you know, when you see these long lines, um, that's a function of a couple of things. First off, it's interest that people have, um, but it's also a function of the fact that in a lot of places, there just aren't as many places to vote. And that has meant that you see these long lines. And so then it makes sense when Georgia passes a statute that says, well, you can't give anybody who's in line water or food. Remember, when I think about that one, I think, what, what is that? What's that all about? But then you think, Long lines, can't give people water or food. I don't know, maybe it's a warm day in November or something in, in Georgia if you're waiting in line, or maybe you know, earlier, a couple of weeks during early voting. And if you get one or 2% of the people who are waiting in line to decide, well, I'm not gonna vote, you know, I, I, just, can't, I, I just can't handle it. Well, you know, if you look at the Ossoff race, the Warnock race, the, George, the, um, the Joe Biden victory in Georgia, that one two percent might have yeah had, and runoffs too right right yeah might, might have had uh, might have had an impact and all of this all of this happens as a result of the uh, of the Shelby the Shelby County case so um, so I want to come back to uh, the, the the work that's being done to maybe restore that but I was curious you know I've I've uh, read uh, your book and listened to uh, some interviews and you are uh, deeply affected by that decision I was wondering was that an inflection point for your life as a, a civil rights leader, as a political figure, how did that impact you as a person? No, I think that description is actually a pretty good one. It was, I think, a professional inflection point. Um, Don Verrilli, who was the um, Solicitor General at the time, in discussing the arguments um, that had gone on related to the Shelby County case, I, I said to him, you know, I said, Don, they're not gonna do it. They're not gonna overturn, they're not gonna go after the Voting Rights Act, given what happened in Congress, which was that they had hearings, hundreds of pages of testimony, hundreds of, of documents, you know, overwhelming majorities passing unanimously in the Senate, um, a Republican president, George W. Bush, reauthorizing the act. I said, no, the Supreme Court will not go that far. And they did, and they did. And you saw, as I said, almost immediately the impact 
of that decision. I mean, the, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 is the crown jewel of the civil rights movement. Um, and for me, growing up in, you know, in New York as a young black guy in the, in the 50s and in the 60s, um, the, the civil rights movement, the, the scene of John Lewis getting his skull cracked on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, I got to know John Lewis you know, later on, but was able to call him a friend. That Edmund Pettus Bridge incident, and then the subsequent Selma to Montgomery uh, march, that's what led to the Voting Rights Act. And so the Supreme Court was, in essence, denigrating, diminishing um, the sacrifices of thousands of people, black, white, um, male, female, people who committed themselves, who sacrificed, um, who gave their lives so that everybody would have the opportunity um, to vote. And the court was turning its back um, on that. And for me, that was um, a seminal decision, a seminal moment, and made me, and kind of reinvigorated um, in me the notion that if I were gonna have a list of priorities as, as Attorney General, the protection of the right to vote uh, was gonna have to be chief among them. Hmm. So there's been some effort to restore uh, the Voting Rights Act. Mm -hmm. um, there was some legislation named after uh, John Lewis, Congressman Lewis, and uh, it uh, did not get passed right. when the Democrats had uh, majorities um, in uh, D.C. Is there a path forward for a restoration of the Voting Rights Act in your eyes? Well, first off, let's say this, and you know, with all due respect to any Democrats in the House, and I'm one of them, Democrats blew it. You know, we had the ability to pass legislation that would in essence have done away with all the harms of the Shelby County case, but we were not willing to do away with the Senate filibuster. That's the, the House passed a bill. It did not get to a vote in the, in, the, uh, in the Senate because a couple of senators decided that they were not gonna do away with the filibuster or to come up with a carve out for the filibuster when it came to electoral things. And there, there were a number of ways in which you could have crafted it. But we had the power to do that which should have been done. And I think that really is the path going forward. Congress is going to have to put in place legislation that says, you know, you can't gerrymander on the basis of race or on a partisan basis. Um, guarantee a certain number of days for, uh, for early voting. There's a whole bunch of um, kind of in the weeds, uh, you know, mechanical stuff that I think that Congress is going to have to do um, and the next time you have a Democratic Congress with a Democratic president, um, we've got to have within us the guts to turn our back on, you know, something that is not in our Constitution. I mean, you know, the filibuster is not a, that's not of constitutional dimension. That's just something that, you know, was put in place and not used very often until Barack Obama became president. You see the use of the filibuster is kind of like this, and usually basically against um, an attempt to pass a civil rights bill. And then Barack becomes president, and it becomes almost a matter of course. And now people will say, well, you need 60 votes to get anything past the Senate. No, you don't. No, you don't. You have to get 50 votes. It's the filibuster that says you have to get to 60. Have you always felt this way, or is this another place where you maybe was were, uh, you know had a more moderate position on it, but the last 10 years have, um, have shifted your opinion on it? I've always thought, you know, majority rule. I mean, you know, I, I talk about it in the book where our founders having had the experience, the negative experience under the Articles of Confederation and when they're drawing up the Constitution actually debated whether or not you should have super majorities in order to pass legislation and ultimately decided if you have super majorities, that'll give too much power to the minority. 
And that, in essence, is what we are, are, are seeing now. Um, that 60 vote um, requirement means that senators from, you know, total 41 senators, and as we have the statistics, you know, in the book representing like almost like a fifth of the country can thwart 80% of the rest of the country as a result of the way in which, you know, the Senate is, is constituted. So more recently, you've been in the news, you were stumping for a candidate for the Wisconsin Supreme Court, yep. um, candidate who ended up winning. Mm -hmm. uh, why is it important for you to, why was it, and it's not the first time that you've been to Wisconsin. You stumped for the a candidate there four years ago. Right. Um, why is it important for you to, uh, to be weighing in on these state level races? Yeah, I, I think that, um, again, I'm a proud Democrat, a progressive. Um, we have tended to focus episodically on, um, on elections, you know, like who's running for president. Um, we come at every four years. And the reality is that what happens at the state level has an impact, a greater impact on our lives on a day-to-day -day basis than what happens in Washington, D.C. Um, Wisconsin is among the most, if not the most, gerrymandered state in the country. It is a Supreme Court that until the new judge, Janet Protasiewicz, is actually sworn in, has a four to three um, Republican, um, Republican majority. And that four to three majority has allowed a whole host of anti-labor, anti-democracy things to be put in place by, back in 2011, Scott Walker and his, you know, his administration. And so the ability to, to flip that court, um, now I, you know, I, I don't have any, I don't, can't guarantee that Janet put to say what's the new judge, how she's gonna vote. She never indicated that. Um, but I have a sense of who she is and that if cases are brought before the court now, that challenge gerrymandering, that they will get a fair hearing. There's also in Wisconsin an 1849 law that outlaws abortion. And that is now the controlling law in Wisconsin as a result of the overturning of Roe versus Wade. 1849, women couldn't vote. People like me couldn't vote. And yet that became a flashpoint in the election. Judge Janet Potosiewicz said, well, I don't see how that law can stand, her opponent wouldn't comment on it, would talk about crime, 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 crime. But he got a sense of where he was on, on that law. And so for a whole range of reasons, um, I thought that election was important and that's why I um, campaigned there for her with the hope that that will undo the gerrymander that is there and protect uh, you know, reproductive rights. So that election um, was more political than, I mean, I'm, I grew up in Wisconsin, so yep. I, I keep an eye on these things. Um, that was a, a very political race for, um, for a, a judge position. Right. Do, you, do you worry at all, or how do you navigate weighing in on a race like that, um, the candidate making a statement about a law, um, it's a very political statement right. for a, a race that is like generally is nonpartisan, right. right? Isn't there danger there in losing the trust of the people in the judiciary? Yeah, there is that danger. I mean, and that is not the way I would, you know, select judges. Um, I think, you know, if you know you're going to give me power, all right, I would have independent commissions, you know, to send in names of nominees, potential nominees, up to. Um, the governor to appoint, you know, who could serve on, on the courts. But we can't turn our back on the fact that um, a lot of the selection process, especially in those places that 
uh, where judges are elected, has turned into a political process. And I can't, it doesn't seem to me that um, being a responsible citizen who might have some degree of influence to simply hope for something, um, a different selection process, and ignore what the reality is. I think that um, Democrats have got to be tough. They've got to be tough. Um, it doesn't mean we're going to be unfair or do things inappropriately, but if it's going to be an electoral process to decide who should be the next Supreme Court justice in a particular state, and you have a sense of you know, who these candidates are, where the parties are, then you've got to do everything that you can to get the better judge um, on, the, uh, on the Supreme Court. So it's not a process that I'm totally comfortable with, um, and I'd like to, as I said, put in a process that was better, but if those are the rules, I'll play by those rules. Um, and I'll be as tough as, uh, you know, as my opponents are. We'll be back with more after this. At Amazon, there's a way up for anyone because there's something for everyone. Like Jessica, who completed free technical training programs and is getting her bachelor's with Amazon's prepaid tuition. Even if you have no knowledge or no experience in IT, Amazon has the tools and the resources to teach you. I've been promoted three times and it's been a significant boost in pay for me. Free technical training programs at Amazon move full-time and part-time employees into higher-paying jobs. Visit aboutamazon.com for more info. For this part of the conversation, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Supreme Court. We mentioned uh, them a little bit. They, they, you know, uh, they've been in the they, news. They've, a been, bit. they've been in the news. Yeah. They make some news. I've, I've noticed that recently. Yeah. <laughs> so there's, uh, and, and we're and we're still just staying in this realm of of voting rights of elections. Uh, there is a case before the court right now. Um, about the independent state legislature doctrine. So this basically means that state legislatures can pick the winner of a presidential election, more or less. Um, if that doctrine is upheld, what does that mean for our electoral landscape? Yeah, well, the independent state legislature case that's before the court doesn't actually go quite that far. The case that's before the court uh, is a question of whether or not the legislature, independent of the governor, independent of the courts can decide um, the drawing of electoral districts. That's the case that is before the court. The danger is, and that they point to a, a sentence in the Constitution that talks about legislature shall have the ability to determine the means and manner by which electors are selected. The, uh, districts are drawn. If you go up a couple of paragraphs, it also says that uh, the state legislature shall have the ability to decide who goes to the electoral college. You have to first understand, this whole notion of this independent state legislature doctrine is a fringe theory. I mean, it's a fringe theory. This is a case that we should be decided by the Supreme Court nine to zero. Not eight to one, not seven to two, not six. This should be a nine zip case. Um, when we argued the case, we had as our co-counsel, uh, Michael Ludig, very conservative, um, uh, former conservative judge, um, conservative legal scholars. Um, we had the conference of chief justices, were Republicans and Democrats, conservatives and progressives, all saying that you know we had the right view of, of this case, that the independent state legislature doctrine was a fringe theory. And it does great damage to our system of checks and balances to think that the legislature will be unencumbered 
by a court saying that what you've done is unconstitutional, inappropriate, not subject to the veto of a governor. That's not the way in which our system of government um, is constructed. The friction between the three branches is what gets us to the place um, where we get our best results and ultimately is the thing that I think makes this nation exceptional. We don't, we don't coordinate, we don't put power in any one branch at the expense of the, uh, of the other. So as I said, historically, uh, everybody who I think is being neutral in this would say that the theory is really fringe. And the fact that four justices said this is a case worthy of consideration is, disturbs me a great deal. Now I think ultimately, you know, if the case, if some procedural reasons, the case might get kicked. But if it doesn't, um, I think we'll win the case. But it would be a disheartening thing to see anything other than a unanimous decision. Because I'd like to see what those, who the dissenters, what they would write to say that the independent state legislature doctrine has some validity to it. And it has the danger that, um, that you said, you, if you extrapolate from uh, state legislature can draw lines without any interference of the courts, look up a couple, of, a couple of paragraphs, well, maybe they can also decide you know, who goes to the electoral college without any interference by the courts uh, or by the governor. Hmm. So maybe just an indicator that we would be on that path. But Potentially. Yeah. Um, you know, given what we, have, what we saw around January the 6th um, and the number of people who were prepared to do things inconsistent with the desires of the voters, this is not something that I can say, we, we should say is beyond the realm of possibility. I mean, if you'd asked me this question five years ago, I'd say, that's not gonna, that would never happen. And yet, January 6th, we have, we have to learn from what happened on January the 6th and protect our um, democracy. We have to learn from history, you know? And I don't wanna be too scary here, but the reality is that authoritarian regimes rose in Europe in the 20th century, fascism rose, in Europe in the 20th century, not because fascism was strong, but because the defense of democracy was weak. And that is, I think, something we need to keep in mind as we look at um, America in 2023. We have to defend our democracy, understand that our democracy is at risk, that it's under attack. And regardless of you know whether you're a Republican, Democrat, conservative, um, liberal, we ought to all agree on the notion that our democracy is precious. Let's operate within the parameters of the rules set out by the founders when they you know, put this imperfect nation um, together. So one last question from me before I'll turn it over to the audience questions. Um, and that is continuing on with, with what you were just saying, looking at 2024. So major election, the you know, biggest election of our lifetimes, again. Uh, what is the landscape for that election? What are the things that you're looking at that you're concerned about for that election? And what can happen between now and then that will shape how that election, not, not, not in how it is run and maybe how, what the results are, not necessarily the political conversation taking place between the candidates? Well, I tell you, the thing that worries me immediately is exactly which is that we weren't gonna talk about, and that is <laughs> what are the rules gonna be for the election in 24? Um, who's gonna to get to vote? You know, there's a whole raft of things being considered in state legislatures now. Um, something now in Texas, you know, that applies only to Harris County, which is the largest county in Texas, largely Democratic, 
Georgia legislature has put in place some new voting restrictions. Um, those things will have an impact on the election in 24. So between now and 24, I'm concerned um, about that. You know, what we talked about at the very beginning, what happens with Donald Trump will have an impact on 24. Uh, will he be the nominee? Will he be crippled by these indictments that I expect are going to, to happen? I'm not sure we'll have um, trials, you know, by, by November of 2024. Um, so there's a whole range of things. And then the issues, the issues, you know, where um, this nation has clearly indicated a desire to protect a woman's right to choose. All the polling shows that. In every state where a poll has been done, um, you have seen people say they didn't want Roe versus Wade overturned. And that's true in New York, it's true in Texas. Now the margins may be slightly different, but there's not been a poll where some, a state said, yeah, we want Roe versus Wade overturned. So that's gonna be an animating thing, I think, for the electorate. Um, the defense of democracy, I think that is something that's starting to seep into the consciousness of the American people. I think that will be an animating thing as well. You know, who gets to choose? Why are we um, putting in place these laws that discriminate against, discourage um, certain groups of people from voting? And young people, I think, are really going to be a factor to a degree that we have not necessarily seen before. When I was in Wisconsin, I was very heartened to see the huge number of young people who came out to vote, animated, I think, in large part by um, the abortion positions of the two candidates for the Supreme Court justice. But I think that once you get a taste of it, and when you see the power that you have, uh, and I think young people need to understand, they are the, now the largest voting bloc in this country. I'm, a, I'm part of the boomer generation, and we don't have as many people as there are young people. But we have greater power because we vote to a much greater degree. Proportionally, we vote to a larger degree than young people do. Um, so issues that will animate uh, the involvement of young people is also something that I, I think is already out there and that I think that will not only be um, something that we saw in 2022, there are some elections in 2023, but I think it'll also animate people in 2024. All right, well, let's move on to uh, the audience questions. There are some really great questions here, so thank you all. Um, uh, number one, and I'm not surprised, what needs to be done about the Supreme Court's ethical issues? It is not you know, going to name any particular members, right? <laughs> no, no particular justices here. Okay. No, no, you can't. Uh, um, it is clear that the court needs to have a code of ethics and needs to be under the same code of ethics as all other federal judges. I mean, yeah. when I was in the executive branch, um, as U.S. Attorney, Deputy Attorney General, um, Attorney General, if I went out, if I, you and I were to go out to dinner, I'd make sure that I bought your dinner or that we split the thing, what, you know, whatever. It, splitting makes it a little awkward, so I, I'll buy dinner, I'll buy dinner. Um, the notion that Supreme Court justices are taking trips, you know, um, that billionaires are paying for, that they're having houses, pay, or a justice having a house, his mother's house, you know, paid for by a billion. These are the kinds of things that um, get to the legitimacy of the court. I mean, you, know, you, you look at these things that I think there's been great reporting done by, you know, ProPublica Pro and other, you know, people are picking up on other organizations are picking up on it now. And I suspect there's gonna be more that we will hear about not only Justice Thomas, but potentially other justices as well. And then they'll look back and see, you know, um, Schultz, uh, Senator Whitehouse, if you haven't seen it, look at what Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, um, it was a statement he gave before 
the start of a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing, I think maybe this week, maybe it might have been the week before. It's about five minutes and 36 seconds. So it's not, not a long expenditure of time. But he talks about um, what's going on in the Supreme Court, what has gone on on the Supreme Court, and why there is the need for a code of ethics. And um, the court cannot think of itself as somehow above those things that control the conduct of other judges. You know, at the end of the day, you know, they, they got to remember they're public servants. You know, if you wanted to take trips with, you know, to I don't know, New Zealand and say see St. Petersburg and all of that, and you needed the money to do it, well, maybe you shouldn't have been a Supreme Court justice. You know, you ought to work for a law firm, make an awful lot of money, and then, and, you know, buy your own tickets and take yourself over there, as opposed to having the benefits of being uh, a member of the Supreme Court and with all of the prestige and benefits of that in order that you get. And then in addition to that, want to have all the material things that in some ways I think as a public servant, I was willing to forego, you know? Um, I'm in private practice now, and I can tell you, my checks are a lot larger now than they were when I was attorney general. Uh, I can remember Janet Reno. Um, it's a quick, quick aside. I was a deputy attorney general. Janet Reno was the AG. I, I love her. I miss her. And she called me up to her office one day. She's on the fifth floor. Deputy attorney general's on the fourth floor. She said, can you believe this? So I go flying up there thinking there's some kind of national security problem. I get up there, and there was this publication called The Legal Times. And Legal Times had an article that said that Lawyers, young lawyers who had just come out of the Supreme Court clerkship were making whatever the amount of money was, which was greater than what the Attorney General of the United States was making. <laughs> and now I've never seen Janet Reno ever focus on money in her life. You know, she used to always buy her cars in places that were not within her district, so she would, anyway. But that really struck her. Uh, and she wanted to bring me up there to, to see this. And, but she, saw it was kind of, she thought it was kind of amusing. And that was the mind, that's the mindset, amusing, that, you know, all right, so these youngsters who've not really done anything, uh, they clerked on the Supreme Court, are making more money than the Attorney General of the United States. But that's the mindset, I think, that public servants have to have. You sacrifice to serve the public. You get a lot of benefits from being AG. You know, as Attorney General, um, I had my own plane, you know? I, I was one of five cabinet members who couldn't fly commercial. I missed my plane, I missed my plane. <laughs> But, but, you know, for those perks that I got as AG, I got a salary that was, you know, absurdly low. Ask my wife. She'll tell me. She'll tell you. Um, but that's the sacrifice. And that is not what um, at least some members of the court have, uh, you know, have demonstrated. And so that code of ethics, I think, is really important generally. And then I think the specific incidents have to be examined to see exactly who did what and why? Do you, do you see um, a possibility of, uh, of Justice Thomas being impeached? Not, no, I mean, as, not as long as there is uh, a Republican-controlled House. Right. I don't think that that's, uh, you know, that's likely. Okay. Uh, next question is about gerrymandering. So mm -hmm. we touched on it a little bit um, in Wisconsin. Of course, um, you know, you're the chair of the National Democratic Redistricting Commission? Committee, yep. Committee? Mm -hmm. um, what is the state of gerrymandering right now, um, and what is the the future of it? Where do you where do you see it going? Are you making progress in the work that you're doing? Yeah, we're making progress. I mean, New York Times uh, did a survey and said that the redistricting process that we just went through was the fairest one that we've had in the last 40 years. 
which doesn't mean that you know, we are at a place where um, we need to be. 75% of the districts have, are said that were drawn, are, are said to have been drawn fairly, which means that 25% were not. Uh, and that's 25% is a big number when you think that the margin in the House of Representatives is now, what, five or six seats, something along those lines. And so we've made a lot of progress, but places like Texas, Georgia, Wisconsin, Ohio, um, Florida, they're, they're still you know, problematic. Um, so I think, yeah, there's still going to be the need to focus on the problem of partisan and racial gerrymandering. And this is something that has gone back, you know, to the beginning of our republic. Democrats gerrymandered, you know, as well. This isn't something that, that's new, and it's not only something that Republicans have done, but uh, we need to finally get rid of it. I mean, in, one of the things we talk about in the book, well, the first gerrymander uh, we were able to find was uh, Patrick Henry. You remember, give me liberty, give me death. Didn't like, I forget which one, either James Monroe or James Madison. Um, didn't like one of the Jameses. And he had the ability, he was part of the process that drew the lines in Virginia, and he gerrymandered one of the, one of the Jameses, either Monroe or Madison, out of a seat that he otherwise might have won. So it's like the people who um, you know, formed this nation were all about the process of trying to use the, the drawing of lines to favor people who they liked or who were their, um, you know, their, their political followers. And it's time for us finally to say, um, every time that we've had the ability to put before the people the notion of an independent commission to draw the lines as opposed to a, an, in, a, an interested state legislature, doesn't matter, blue state or red state, Missouri, Utah, Colorado, Michigan, um, they've all voted for an independent commission. And I think that's actually the best way uh, to, do, to do it. Okay, um, question on felon disenfranchisement. Um, not only, this is what the uh, audience member wrote, not only those who have served their time should incarcerated people themselves have the right to vote. Interesting. You know, um, I have come out against felon disenfranchisement um, given its sordid history. Um, it really took off after the, the Civil War when people who had been formerly enslaved um, were given the right to vote. The old power structure saw you know, black people um, going to represent Mississippi in the United States Senate, people going to the House of Representatives. And they said, oh, well, we gotta come up with some way in which we deal with that. So we'll say, all right, people who are felons can't vote. Sounds kind of a neutral thing. And then you go and you decide, well, if you're black and you're in Mississippi, we'll come up with some ruse, whatever it is, you know, loitering, whatever, call it a felony, and take away your ability um, to vote. So I've been always against the notion of felon disenfranchisement. Um, but to say, on the other hand, but to say as part of the thing that you give up when you commit a crime that puts you in jail is the ability to vote, I'm not as negative, I'm not as opposed um, to that, as long as your rights are restored once you have paid your debt to um, society. Um, so I'm against felon disenfranchisement you know, forever, but the notion of uh, losing your ability to vote from jail is not something that disturbs me uh, as much. I, I, as a follow-up to that, I mean, the, our, our incarcerated population is so large um, there are uh, changes being made in drug laws. There's, um, you know, there, there is a, um, you know, uh, if not a reckoning, just a reexamination of why we put people in, um, in prisons. Doesn't that give you second thoughts? Well, you see, actually, that's a good thing. I was making assumptions here because that's actually the necessary part of my last answer about 
not take, are taking away the vote from people who are in jail. Um, I gave a speech in 2015, I guess, when we announced what we called our Smart on Crime initiative, and I said that too many people go to too many jails for too long for no good law enforcement reason. And so if you have in place a system that is not the new Jim Crow, as Michelle Alexander called it, um, that is an integral part of my um, lack of opposition to taking away the right from people, people to vote. We have put you know, too many African Americans, Hispanics in jail for drug-related crimes uh, to a degree that their white counterparts um, did not. We treated in this country the crack problem as something that needed to be solved by the criminal justice system, as black folks, Hispanic folks. Now we have an opioid crisis. And what are we doing? It's a public health issue. And we don't see the use of our criminal justice system to the same degree. Now, I'm not saying that we should use the criminal justice system to deal with the opioid crisis. I think what we should have done is we should have used the public health um, issue, the public health tool, when it came to dealing with the crack problem. Now, people who who sell drugs you know, for economic reasons, have to be held accountable, and you put them in jail, that's fine. Um, but when I was a judge in Washington, D.C., I was forced as a result of mandatory minimum sentences to put people in jail who were you know, mules, as we call them. People had substantial num- amount of drugs on them. They were transporting drugs, not making huge amounts of money to get in, in the transporting, some to support habits that they had. And so reforms need to be put in place. And so, yeah, we incarcerate, we incarcerate more people in this country than any other nation on Earth. We are 4% of the, nation's pop, of the world's population, and about 22% of all the people who are incarcerated on this planet are incarcerated here in the United States of America. We, on a per capita basis, incarcerate more people than Russia, China, any other, any other um, society. And so we have to really rethink, rethink that. And I think that, as I said, is kind of undergirds what I said earlier about uh, taking the vote away from people who are in, in jail. Okay, so we have, we have time. We don't really have time for it, but I'm gonna ask one more question. Because I wanna give you I want to give you a good- What happens if we go over the limit? I don't know, should we see what happens? Oh, we're over right now, because okay. the red light is blinking. Okay. But anyway, so, um, I just want to give us a, a nice place to wrap up. Okay. Um, and uh, this comes from uh, one of the audience members. Again, thank you for these questions. Uh, besides legislation to protect voting rights, what else can be done? For example, what's the chance of having voting day as a national holiday? But I'd like to add on to that. Uh, what do you want to give to the people in this room, uh, You know, to the people listening at home? What are things that you think people can do to um, to uh, to further the efforts that you have been working on? Yeah, I mean, th- this notion of making Election Day a national holiday is actually one of the proposals that I have in the book. I mean, think about it. We vote on a Tuesday. Think about that. Now, it has something to do with the 19th century and bringing crops to market. My guess is that, and I don't want to offend anybody here, but I suspect many of you have not brought crops to market for some time. That's just an assumption. Um, and so, There's yeah. a good farmer's market culture here in Seattle, though, so okay. you never know. All right, well, I, I apologize, I apologize. <laughs> um, but, you know, make it a national holiday or just make, how about election day on Saturday? You know, so people don't have to decide between their jobs and getting um, the ability, having the ability to vote. And, you know, what I would say more generally is this. You know, Dr. King said that the arc of the moral universe is long and it bends towards justice. 
But here's the deal. It doesn't bend on its own. It only bends when people like us, when people like you, put their hands on that ark and pull it towards justice. And what you've got to ask yourself, what you have to ask yourself, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you going to do after this conversation? What are you going to do, hopefully, after you read my book? What are you going to do after you get so upset about something that you see on television? What are you doing to change this system of ours? Um, every generation of Americans has been called upon to defend our democracy, whether it's in the battlefields of Gettysburg, to the beaches of Normandy, from Selma to Montgomery, at Stonewall. Um, every generation of Americans has been called upon to defend democracy. This can't be the first generation that fails at that task. We have the capacity within ourselves. We underestimate the power that we have as a committed, focused, active people um, to bring about positive change. People always tell me, well, why are you so optimistic? Well, here's the deal, you know, because I, 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 as you look in the book, I throw our history. We have seen people decide, you know, the system's wrong and we're going to change it. Women said, you know, we're going to get the right to vote. It didn't happen simply because the time had come. It happened because women fought for it, died for it, sacrificed for it. Civil rights movement, we destroyed a system of American apartheid, not because its time was over, but because people fought for it, sacrificed for it, died for it. And we have got to be as committed now in the defense of our democracy as our predecessors um, have been in the past. I'm actually confident that um, we can do this. If we will stay focused, if we will stay um, committed, we can make more perfect um, this nation that I love. You know, has given me great opportunities, great opportunities. Um, I'm confident that we can make this nation, um, you know, more perfect and more bring it closer to its, um, its founding ideals. But it's going to take activism. It's going to take commitment. It's going to take work. But we can do this. We can do this. And that's it for today's episode. Thanks again to Eric and Mark for the talk. This episode of Crosscut Talks was produced by Seth Halloran and engineered by Resty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. And the event was produced by Jake Newman and Anne O'Dowd. Madeline Happold managed our audience engagement. And you can subscribe to Crosscut Talks wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please review us. We want to know what you think. For the latest political, environmental, and cultural news from the Pacific Northwest, visit CrossCut.com. And if you would like to support the work we do at CrossCut, whether it's live events we host or the in-depth reporting we do every day, go to CrossCut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to on-demand programming on Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9. CrossCut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Paris Jackson. We'll be back soon with another conversation.